It's about the culture. Even more than that, it's about caring. It's caring about the future of the organization, but even more than that, caring about the future of the people who work in the organization, what is best for them. And the way most organizations have defined what's best for their constituents has been primarily whatever the client wants and the client needs. And that's not going to change. But what needs to change is that for that company to remain in an architecture field or profession, for that organization to thrive and make enough profit to invest in their people, get them more vacation time and all the things that they want, the learning and education on the side so they can continue to grow, that company has to care for their people. There are many companies that already do, of course. Those may not be thinking in terms of data within the practice, and they need to turn their attention at that point. But if you cannot turn your attention prior to that. Those things need, they're very basic human things that need to happen. Welcome to Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, I'm very, 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 very excited to be joined by Randy Deutsch. Randy is an architect, an author, an educator, a speaker, and an AI researcher. I don't know, and I think many people that know Randy might not know how he fits it all into his schedule, but he was also recently elevated to a fellow of the AIA and also is a senior fellow at the Design Council, Features Council. So, Randy, thank you for joining us on this conversation. Absolutely thrilled to be here live with you today. Yeah. Maybe to just start off, can you give us a little bit of the highlight reel, some thumbnails about your career trajectory so far? Absolutely. And I actually uh, anecdotally share it in my uh, the book that's coming out next month, Adapters and Architect, in the chapter on career transformation, because I went out with my family to, many years ago to celebrate 25 years in the field without a redundancy or without being laid off. And I don't know if it was the waiter who tipped off my boss, but within three weeks, I was let go. And I could have just you know learned Revit better or whatever it was I needed to do and just get another job in the field. But it occurred to me at that time, this is coming out of the 2008 economic downturn, so I wasn't alone in that situation, to stay in the field and keep doing what I was doing or look around and see what's really needed out there, even though there was no precedent in terms of my own education or experience or background to do it. Yeah, I started teaching, started writing books, started consulting, started speaking first nationally and then globally. And these things are all interrelated. And so that's really what's happened in the last decade since that economic downturn. Hmm. And some of the books that you're well known for that you've published in the past have been really focused around, essentially BIM was kind of like the starting point, right? Where you started to dip your toes into it, I guess. Can you walk us a little bit through that? Like what prompted you to focus on that specifically out of other topics that were? Yeah, so all of my books basically come out of a question. And other than the first book, I initiated that question. So for example, I heard at least a thousand times around 2016 through webinars, podcasts, and so on, presentations, people in our industry saying that things were converging without ever giving a definition or explaining what that meant. So by the thousandth time I heard that, I you know, uh, created citations, I remembered what they were, and then I tried to define it myself and then came out with the Convergence book. But with that first BIM book, I have to admit, it wasn't a plan. Like a lot of serendipitous things that happened to us in the field of architecture, somebody on LinkedIn, who I happen to know through publishing, he just asked everybody in his network, you got a book out there, and I did on creativity. And he said, we don't do creativity. What else you got? And so I, uh, long story short is I sent him over, I stayed up all night, sent him 17 ideas. He's, he picked three. It was leadership, collaboration, technology. And he said, if you can write a book on this, these, using these three topics, you've got a book deal. And I said to him these words, and to this day, I don't know where it came from. Oh, you mean BIM and integrated design? He said, that's it. That's the title. So it was very serendipitous because then there's a trajectory after that, right? You don't write a book on BIM and then your second one's on fly fishing. It doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think in that, after that, you had a book on Converge that I think was specifically about convergence, right? Actually, like that, a, right. In between, I uh, don't fault you on not remembering it because I might be the only person who ever read it. It's on data-driven design and construction right. in 2015. Yeah. And one book I kind of want to spend, one topic I want to spend some time talking about is the notion of super users, which was the topic of a book that you published a couple of years back. 
that book, I think, really crystallized or started to talk about one of the only few books out there to talk, maybe even sociologically talk about what does it mean when BIM actually becomes part of an organization? Because with any new technology that comes into how you work, it redefines workflows, which naturally then redefine roles and responsibilities of the people that are doing it. It also redefines like what you have to know in order to be good at that specific tool. And so one thing I'm very curious about is if you can maybe walk us back a little bit and, and just kind of define what super users was about, what did it come out of, and then we can kind of dive a little bit deeper there. Sure. So the operative word that you just used a moment ago is naturally. So naturally, the processes, the workflows and such should have grown out of the new use of technology and the collaborative interaction and so on. I didn't see that happening so much, right? The fact that our org charts didn't adapt, the fact that it was always a fight to go, you know, use certain tools, use them exclusively and so on. And so for that reason, I asked myself in more of a gestalt way, uh, looking at the larger overview, like a high level overview of the whole industry, but also in terms of teams and firms and individual careers, what would it mean if the light bulb went off for all the uh, firm principals or leaders and organizers within our organizations, if they actually recognized what was really happening, that groundswell within the organization, and then didn't necessarily exploit it, just enabled it to actually do what it was inevitably, or the word you use naturally, going to do. And so while I never really describe it that way in the book, that's really what it's talking about. It's saying, yes, I mean, we haven't had increased productivity in over 60 years. We haven't been able to advance ourselves in any sector in design and construction, really, in a long period of time. We're behind all the other markets. And and there is a huge amount of opportunity, and it was really based not on the technology, it was based on the individuals. So what was stopping it was recognizing this idea that we're just, it's very different from CAD, and where we had CAD managers or BIM managers, um, not to take anything away from either of them. It was this idea that above and beyond the technology, these individuals were also comfortable with people. And that had, there was much more of a demographic mm-hmm. influence than a technological one. It was the... The folks born 1995 or after, the Gen Zs in particular, but also some of the millennials as well who are comfortable with the tools, but comfortable, even better than comfortable. They thrived in working with their network, sharing ideas. Everyone remembers reaching out to AU Forum, I think, or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, anytime you had a question, you just type it in and you get 40 answers. We were the first generation to do that. So Long story short, I think where that book really came out of, it was the easiest book ever to write because it was happening and I don't think anyone was seeing it. Yeah, and I still think that it's not being seen in the right way still. I mean, I'm very curious from your perspective to hear, have organizations taking you up on sort of the challenge that you were defining in the book? I think there's a section where you talk about how this role of a super user, which in some ways is analogous to like design technology just for people to map it over to maybe a term or role that they've heard of. Like it's either the BIM manager or the design technologist that's diving, that's using more advanced tools and, and programming that, that can be classified as a super user. Have you seen the evolution of org charts since the book has been published? Curious what you do. Yeah, so that's a great question because I think normally I would have been able to answer in the affirmative now, but for the pandemic. While I don't think that in and of itself changed anything. I think what happened is sort of behind the scenes within companies, I actually think the whole super user idea, I'm hearing every single day in my inbox, somebody privately telling me at their firm, and these are household name firms, top 20 firms, I just wanna let you know, thank you for sitting in on our meeting last night, but my company is X, And the partners bought 20 copies and we're all passing around and discussing, sharing it. Or these well-known firms are having book clubs using the book. I think the discussions are happening. I don't think the org charts are changing. But I also don't think the org charts are changing because nobody knows exactly what's going to happen moving forward. So part of my research now is trying to figure out how do you move forward when you don't know the next step. All my books have tried to anticipate the next five to 10 years And right now, 
we need to act in real time, but not act in the sense of doing what we were always doing. We have to find, you know, again, as a professor, I can't look into a crystal ball. I have to just observe what people are doing within our field through practice-based research and then connect the dots through pattern recognition and then try to anticipate what's on the horizon. And I'm just here to tell you that I don't think there are org charts right now in firms. I don't think there's going to be a new org chart until maybe August or September. Hmm. Maybe we can also just kind of talk a little bit about why it's important. Why is the idea of having a new org chart even important for people or like for organizations? I think people need this, the assurance. It lowers their anxiety. It assures their spouses and kids. If they are making a decision to either work at or continue in a company and rise within the organization, and they see that there's a place saved for them, potentially. Nothing's ever promised, never a sure thing, right? There could be a leadership change and a whole different approach to things at any time. But I think there's that assurance, and that's what's missing. You know the phrase risk journey from super users, Jordan Billingsley's uh, wonderful phrase to describe not the career path of design technologists, but the actual way it feels in real time when you are just doing what you do. One thing I really love that Shane Berger said is, you know, if you're a super user, you're not thinking about the org chart. You're not thinking about your future. You're thinking about two things. What problem needs solving and who else needs to benefit from the result? And if you just do that all day long, you'll be happy, you'll be fulfilled, you'll be well-fed and well-paid and well-vacationed. There's no complaints, really. And I don't see super users themselves so concerned about that. But I also think you recognize that my students from time to time ask me, is there a future for this role? And I just tell them what I just told you. There is, absolutely. In fact, they represent the future. There's not only a place for them, they are the entire place. Whether it happens this year or five years from now, it's going to happen. It's inevitable. But you're not going to have that anxiety-reducing feeling you get when you go on the company's art chart and see yourself. You're not going to see yourself there. Right. Yeah, I think there's also another thread to the story that has to do with, like, when we think about BIM, I think if you go, for those that may have heard of this term, like, buildings equal data, which was defined by a consultancy called CASE, was kind of the mantra that overtook the conversation around design technology, gave it a gave it sort of a flag to hold, right? To be able to say like, hey, we need to look at the world differently. These buildings aren't two-dimensional things that we're drawing right now. They're actually can be a, whole, a database, right? That you can pull from and derive insights from. And we've seen the evolution of that conversation up to a point where from one perspective, it's still siloed within one team. And often that team in practice ends up being like the design technology team ends up being, or let's say, even if it's a smaller firm, it's the BIM manager, they end up being almost like a support desk for troubleshooting more so on what, on like the, maybe the gap of knowledge within other team members and the tool that they're using. Mm-hmm. And so the thing that I struggle with is just, you have from your employee pool, probably the most versatile types of employees that understand data really well. They can manage it in ways that are complex and sophisticated And yet that's never leveraged necessarily across the organization in a way that can be much more impactful. So imagine embedding or having a structure in place that could have someone on your finance team paired up with a design technologist, someone on the marketing team paired up with what would be a design technologist to understand how the data from a CRM can travel all the way to the project model back again to derive new insights on like types of customers to go out, clients to go after, right? I think this is the, the, it's almost to a point where like it hasn't reached that next step of like, you can imagine like the CTO might be a good, let's say executive stakeholder in this case, but it hasn't reached that, that level of maturity yet where it's really thinking of like, oh, what would be the impact of leveraging the skill set across the entire company, not just within the production of projects? So, you know, I'm not going to clear myself in saying uh, data-driven design and construction. My 2015 book was ahead of its time, and that's why I'm the only one who's ever read it. But I am going to say that book actually featured buildings equals data, the logo from Case. But it also talked about how this idea of data and using it throughout the organization is an outgrowth of what we were saying since 2009, which is 
it's really about the I in BIM, not the B or the M. But more importantly, this idea that we have a lot of public and private data, our client data at the early stages of the project, and we have the users, we have the even the neighbors, we have the public at large who want to leverage this data at the other end and for this incredible opportunity for us as a industry, but also a profession and organizations to redefine ourselves as information intermediaries. Because it's up to us to connect that early data, public and private data, to and make sure it's in a usable format, a user-friendly format from the customer side at the other end. And I don't see, on the one hand, I want to say, I don't see a lot of firms that have done that from a startup standpoint, saying we're a new type of organization that where we're information intermediaries. That said, to the credit of several people, one company, SOM, let's just say, I tell the story in the data-driven design book. So remember, this is six years ago where a client from Asia calls and says they want a high-rise like the high-rise that your firm did in New York, but with these types of windows and it needs to be oriented differently, what have you done? And so, yeah, the marketing department understands how to do a data search through the data sets within the organization, both in terms of images and visuals and in terms of information. Said, so, well, we have a range of 17 high-rises that match your profile. And this is in the same phone call. And they range you know, from this height to this height. They have these types of windows and so on. And that's that conversation you always have when you uh, vet a firm and say, I have this amount of experience, but it's data-driven and it's the marketing department. It's not marketing calling the architecture team saying, what have you done? It's marketing being savvy enough. So I actually think there are pockets of what you're describing in a lot of different places. And to the extent that we can sew them together or connect the dots, I actually think we have a new model of an organization and possibly a new model of a profession if we can bring that all together. The one missing ingredient for that to happen is culture. Hmm. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, it's idea that I think a lot of the answers originally were in Agile, for example. People like Schoenberger, as you know, hmm. and many others have from a, formed a groundswell from the ground up have tried to introduce like forming committees and having little pockets of success within the company. And then once a quarter presenting to the partners and the rest of the organization the success they see and it never catching on because maybe the partners say, what does this have to do with buildings? This has to do with process. You know, this is might as well have an ISO exercise or something else within our organization. That's not really the culture here. It's moving too far away from serendipitous magical thinking or magic moments that why we went into architecture to begin with and so on. So I don't think there's any one uh, negative response to it. I just think that it's going to be much easier for a startup. And this is coming from somebody who's a firm believer that architects ought to stay in architecture and not leave and join startups. And I'm saying this to you. And so 90% of the time I spend is trying to keep my students in the industry and try to keep professionals in the industry. That's why I write the books I write. But the bottom line is, is it's going to be easier to define your own culture and hire to it within a startup than it is going to be to take a pre-existing company and expect that change, except for one factor. It's almost the same thing that we saw in 2008. In 2008, firms that had only done museums or institutional projects, partner, you know, they flip a coin and a partner would attend a uh, executive education series of classes at Harvard GSD to suddenly learn how to do K through 12 schools. Something right to work in a different sector. It's much easier. This goes back 400 years to the invention of the architectural encyclopedias. Anytime there's been an economic downturn, it's a huge opportunity within the professional field and markets to actually make a cultural change. Right, because we're working remotely now, and that's a cultural change. And that's something intellectually nobody agreed to, but now we're actually doing it, and we're all benefiting from it. So I actually think this very moment, March 2021, is the time for companies that are existing, if anyone's listening in here, to actually raise that question. And by that, I don't mean the design technologists to raise it for the leaders. It's for the leaders themselves to say, you know what? We've thrown so many other things out the window. Maybe what we need to do is revisit this idea where we have outcome-based projects, where everything that, you know, maybe we've got a small fee up front and it's all performance-based, 
and maybe a year after the project is done, instead of getting professionally commissioned like we did through LEED, we actually have a group, an independent group we work with that proves that it actually lives up to all the hype that we said was going to happen. And when it does, it's payday. That's when we really benefit. And then the employees benefit and the profession, industry, and future architects will benefit from that. Yeah, it's interesting that it's kind of this notion uh, sometimes referred to as like skin in the game, right? It's like mm-hmm. the if you change the incentive such that you really have to focus on the outcome, then the reward is outsized relative to if you had just done it sort of per hourly or some other uh, fee structure. Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned this now work from home culture that's emerged because of COVID, um, which has been a super unex- improbable event, right? Not impossible, but improbable event, obviously, that has shooken things up. You're a researcher that has focused a lot now in terms of the future of technology and how that might impact the profession from construction supply chain side too, right? AI and the like. And I'm curious what other technological, let's say if that was more of an event that is global in nature, right? What other what other things should we be looking out for that could also change the assumptions that the industry is based on today? Sure. Yeah, prior to your disappointment, I don't think there's any magic bullets, but I do think there's some tools we're currently using that we're not exploiting for their full capabilities. One is, you know, I love turning to examples from landscape architecture, where I consult with landscape registration boards, as well as, you know, architectural ones, you know, looking at what the future will come. But in landscape in particular, this idea that we can uh, leverage our pre-existing computational tools, Dynamo or Grasshopper, to not only solve the problems we're asked to solve or need to solve, but in doing so, there's the data dust and the off-gassing of those solutions that actually solve other problems or create other opportunities. One of which is using those same files to operate, in the case of landscape, the bulldozers to create the design out mm. in the field. And so going direct to fabrication, I sound like a broken record. I've been saying this for about six years, but leveraging those computational tools to start fabricating. We need to all, again, from a cultural standpoint, social standpoint, need to talk to our attorneys and insurers to make sure they're comfortable with the language having to do with means and methods. But we're starting right now during the pandemic to see a, an acceptance, a glasnost, sort of a warming up to the idea that we don't just have to provide the IKEA instructions as design professionals. We also could be the makers of these things. Again, we have pockets of that and examples out there, but this is a model that more and more of us need to do. Um, Another one, of course, is just pure automation. And that's something I address in the book, super users. I define uh, computational thinking exclusively as, you know, 12 noon, if lunchtime rolls around, one o'clock in New York, rolls around and you recognize that you've repeated something two or three times, write a script, find someone in the office who can. But the main thing is, is from a mindfulness or presence standpoint, recognize you've done that. A lot of architects currently working out there that have repeated things for 20 years, let alone the first four hours of the day. And we need to all become better at doing it. And one of the things that's stopping us is this fear. It's the same fear that many of us have had as we rise within our organization. And I address this in Adapt as an Architect, which is written for mid-career architects in training the people who will replace us. We feel as though if we actually give what we're doing over to automation. Similarly, you know, going to a grocery store and using the uh, automated checkout, we're uh, taking jobs away from people. And the reality is, at least within our architecture, I can't speak for you know the grocery industry, is that that's not the case at all. It's actually freeing us up to leverage our core competency. It's getting us back in touch with why we went in this industry to begin with. And if we if we have any grievances or misgivings about that decision that we made, they'll go away fairly quickly yeah. if we stop doing the grunt work and leverage the automation to do it. So I can go on from there, but those are two that really just jump out at me without naming any specific products. There's a ton of promise there. And again, it's got to be the culture that recognizes that and gives the green light. I'd, hopefully, it's not just like an email memo from now on. We're using generative tools. But it's something that people stand behind within a company saying, look, I don't recognize exactly how this works. 
And as long as you, my employee, doesn't remain a black box where I don't understand the way you think or the decisions you're making, it's bad enough that the tools are a black box. As long as you're transparent in why you're doing what you're doing, and if you created an algorithm, what were some of the decisions that went into that, then I trust the outcomes and I'm willing to you know, bring them along. Yeah. There's an interesting flip side to this is like a lot of the focus that you're describing too is the fear is almost internalized within the walls of the firm, but people outside of the walls of the firm don't have that same fear. They see it as an opportunity. What I mean by that is like the potential of automation and like, let's say if you're not attuned to it today. What that really opens up is the opportunity for another company to come in with no preconceived ideas about how should we do things, what's the world. They don't have none of the baggage, so to speak, of trying to start a firm or or what that looks like. They just see the problem and they look at the problem and they see how can I deliver the solution. So as an example, there are companies out there that are automating a renovation of kitchens, as an example. There's about uh, three of them or four of them that exist out there. And they're not really concerned about all the kind of things that an architecture firm might be concerned about. They're just scared about how do we provide an amazing experience for a client or customer because the language changes there too. And what do we need to do in order to streamline the value to take what would have been a 12 week process and shrink it to four weeks or whatever. Right. And that I think is the other part of it that I think people need to recognize is that if you're just focused on yourself in some way, right, you really could miss how the sand is shifting underneath your feet. Sure. But I also credit firms. They do need to think of themselves. I actually think it's 50% of the proposition. And I don't buy it when we almost, we're not speaking robotically, but we're not crediting human personality. We're not crediting their human psyche and their soul, the soul of the organization, if you don't mind my saying that. I think we have to admit that companies are successful in part because of personalities. And those personalities need to continue to lead from that space. But at the same time, need to admit that the world has moved on, right? You know, you're, yeah, you'd be the absolutely. first one to say that Amazon delivers something to us in a certain way, and it delivers something to our clients a certain way, and the client is wondering why the architect doesn't look, deliver in the same way, right? So. The two things that I would add to what you're saying is this. What you're describing, engineers, when given a problem, have one step, solve it. Architects have always introduced a roadblock, a bump in the road, an impediment of some sort, and that's called a big idea. And it's an iterative process, right? Hopefully you don't use up the whole budget or the whole schedule, but hopefully you're not spinning wheels either. It's a spiral. And they're working towards through that iteration towards a great solution and may end up being a place where people really value where they live or where they work and so on. So number one, architects are just inherently different from startups that act like engineers or think like engineers. I mean, that just that's, you know what? And the second thing is the more important one, which is architects have to remember they've never created more than two to three percent of all the buildings mm-hmm. in the world, Absolutely. right? So 97% of the other buildings have always been created by non-architects. And it's kind of like startup, knock yourself out. Um, I would add to that equation, and I tell this to my students all the time, if you don't want to even learn Rhino, Revit, CAD, no problem. I keep an ongoing list of sort of bad behavior, but wonderful firms where you could work and freehand draw or draft. You can just pretend like it's the 1970s all over again. And those are largely boutique firms. Those are largely firms that are hired to do schematic design and hand off the working drawings and all the liability and responsibility and probably a lot of the profit to others. But yeah, it's a great life. Go knock yourself out. And I don't say that sarcastically. That is an option available to you. So I'm not pushing or shoving uh, technology down their throat. But yeah, more likely we'll be live in a world of the other 90%. And that's the reality we, we're talking about today. Absolutely. I think like it's about the awareness in a sense more so about like how the world is changing and being open to the opportunity to change along with it in a way that makes sense with the business ultimately, right? I mean, it's not to say that it's just to recognize that the expectations of customers and clients are changing and that should be addressed and not ignored. Because then by not taking, a, uh, let's say, a specific stance on it, it's where you strategically could harm the business as a whole. 
and I think to your point of like, you know, that firm that really just like it could be the 1970s, like there is a market for that, right? There are, depending on who they attract, there's probably a resonance there towards how they market themselves. And it's likely that they market the fact that they do hand drawing. So it attracts a certain person that wants that. And it, but it comes from a, ideally it comes from a self-awareness too, of like what they care about and who they hope to work with. Sure. And that, that informs the strategy. It's, it's more just like the, yeah, it's not, it's not, I agree. It's not, it's not like a blanketed thing. It's just more, there's nuance in the situation per firm, but they just have to realize that the things are ultimately changing and the shelf life of that market that you're in that really loves hand drawings might shrink over time. And sure. And it, okay it, with as, that. A full, as a full-time university professor, uh, I face this every single day and as a customer, so to speak, as a student. And the world has moved on. Where else do you have to spend five or six years to do something, right? To get a degree or to get something in return for what you invest. And for that reason, last fall, NCAR proposed you know, getting a professional degree in four years. And it's going to be that who can do it in three years? Who can do it in two mm. years? Who can just put a, implant something in your head and you have it immediately? Or the Google Glass. So I think we need to all be thinking in terms of customer relations, customer satisfaction. I come from practice, so that language is very threatening if you have a PhD, if you're a lifelong academic, which I'm not. And if it's not threatening, then it's just an incredible turnoff. But I think the reality is, is we all need to wake up. And if we can't do it from within, both the architecture profession and academia that feeds into it, it's going to be a disruptor from the outside. And they're already there. It's just a matter of which one. It's not when it's going to happen. It's already happening. Yeah, it's also a matter of like, if you want to maintain the status quo, then you have to get very, very good about how you market yourself and understand who really wants the type of services that you're providing. It's just like, no matter the situation, you just can't remain static or oblivious to the shifting sand. And for some people, that might be a whole reset, depending on the size of the firm, right? Maybe a smaller firm is more nimble to make that kind of like organizational change and say, you know what? Let's figure out how 3D scanning is going to be part of our workflow and our services. And let's think more. They're obviously, like it's much easier to do that than in a much larger organization. But I think that's an incredible point, which is, you know, again, just using this as a metaphor. Yeah, two years ago, every firm had at least one VR headset and they were kind of messing with it. And then sometimes their clients would come in for meetings and they put the headset on the client. It was completely backwards. I mean, what they really should have done is just sat down, either ethnographically, you know, went to their client's offices and sat around with them for a week, um, going to lunch with them, going to job sites and so on, or just sat around and brainstormed, which architects do really well in a conference room and said, what are the problems facing our clients? Let's put ourselves in their shoes. Let's create personas, that whole approach from design thinking to this, come up with a solution. Instead, it just seemed to stall. And I think that, you know, from a, again, an academic standpoint, this idea I was just describing a moment ago of making the professional architecture degree shorter and shorter because that's what the world is providing everybody else right now in the real world. Things happening faster. Right? You order something, you get it the next day or even the same day. It doesn't work, for example, for PhDs because we're not thinking about what the motivation is for the folks who are getting it. It wouldn't make sense to winnow that down to an 18-month PhD. The motivation for some going into PhD is maybe they're afraid of actually going out into the workforce and they want it to be five to seven years. And that's actually what drives them. Then it just becomes a different problem solve, which is how do you fund all those years to make it achievable? So... I think the answer is always, you know, and I know I'm speaking to the group converted with you, is thinking of things from the consumer standpoint at the far end and then working back and asking ourselves, do we have a tool that more agilely, more effectively, cost-effectively, time-effectively can solve this problem? And if it is, then that's the answer. And that's why I wrote Super Users. It's not about the technology. It's about the person who can ask those questions and then feel comfortable enough to take those things at home at night, those tools, and mess around with them and see if they can get one of them to answer that question. Yeah, and that's another piece of this too. It's that, to go back a little bit to the Schoenberger interview, I think where you mentioned that he was saying, you know, the people that are super users are, are pretty content where they're at in the sense that like they're focused on these problems and whatnot. But I think part of that is, it's still in my mind, the, the fact that like this type of person in general is 
viewed through a very specific lens, which is the tools that they use, as opposed to the mindset that they have, which can be more valuable than other forms. I just, I just struggle with why hasn't there been more, let's say, and there might be people that disagree with me at this point, but it's also like design technology should almost be part of the executive table in the <laughs> sense of how decisions are being made. Because the people that work under that organization at a smaller firm, it's like the BIM manager. Oftentimes those people have a sensibility to understand how to improve the life through tools of, let's say, other parts, like whether when we talk about like client experience, it's like finding tools out there that can help for a better due diligence experience, right? There are tools out there right now that can allow you to, if you have a client fill out a form, it will do a credit check on them automatically and tell you, hey, this is a good client or not, right? Yeah. There's ways in which you can reframe how you do the work. And the reason why I think that's also important is because aside from like, let's say the really like the AI and the robotics and all that other stuff, it's like there are other types of businesses that are trying to, depends on the typology, but you have the McKinsey's of the world that are also saying like, hey, we also provide services for space design and strategy. And we can, in a commercial setting, we can open up for commercial office space or for hospitals or for other typologies, we can come in and actually be your consultant, mm -hmm. right? And be your assessor for risk. And yeah. There, yeah. there's just other parts of this too, that and they, they focus on providing an, a very different customer experience than some firms might. So, yeah. yeah. I definitely see that as well. I think the answer for the firm in looking at the design technologist or the super user and only seeing tools, I think that's always been the case. I don't think that has changed. I mean, that goes back to just looking around who can use a Prismacolor, you know, to come up with a sketch or rendering because the client's coming in at three o'clock. I don't think it's any different than that. And the three words that pretty much pin that down or settle that is, unfortunately for firms, it's all about the bottom line. And even firms that have research and development, yeah, that went from 100% speculative to 50-50, where 50% of the work had to be project-based research, right? And that happened between 2015 and 2017. It didn't take very long for that to change. That was every firm. Nobody's doing 100% supported research or funded research, internally funded. So yeah, it's unfortunate that most of the partners currently and historically have thought in terms of tools, but I am seeing not just mergers and acquisitions through the pandemic, but also a change in leadership. And it's not happening the way it did very vocally, even with all the social media we have, it's not announced on Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter the way it was after the 2008 downturn. It's through private emails or through not mass emails, but maybe selective emails to certain individuals who have an invested interest in these firms. And these moves are all demographic. They're going from the boomers to, well, I apologize to anyone listening in, but it's skipping the Gen Xs because they may not be predisposed always to want to step up for the leadership. They may prefer to have work-life balance. So it's going to the millennials and maybe the upper millennials right now in a lot of cases. So we are going to see that change because the millennials don't look at a human being and see a tool. They look at them and see a mindset. They see an attitude. They see a you know, mindset and a skill set, yes, but they also see all the other wonderful things that they can offer and have always offered beyond the tools that they leverage. So that's a great synthesis of that. That's really fascinating. I didn't know as much about the m as that's happening. We just really saw per yesterday uh, Perkins Eastman and Pfeiffer emerged. Um, mm. Again, it's quieter it's behind the scenes. It's selective mm. or selectively announced. And not because they're unsure of the outcome. Inevitably with mergers, there'll be redundancies or potentially layoffs or reshuffling, right? Because the overlap of roles. But, you know, so maybe they don't want to do that. But also with um, social justice, racial justice, other, more, you know, the pandemic, it's almost crass to announce a merger and acquisition through yeah. Twitter these days, right? Yeah, a fair point. So maybe we can take some questions from the audience and then we can wrap up, just talk a little bit about your new book, Adapt as an Architect, because I'm very curious how all this translates. Great, thank you. Um, anyone have any questions so far? While well, people are marinating on on questions mm -hmm. maybe we can talk a little bit about the new book about how does this translate to adapt like an architect yeah so on the one hand these books are meant to address i think the first in the series is think like an architect and now adapt as an architect is coming out next month 
I'm trying to write a series of books that address the different phases of the architect in their careers. And again, my bias is addressing the architecture student or the architect who plans on staying in the field. Now, I teach a class to final semester grad students where I lecture on having passive income or lecture on the importance of having a startup, but don't, you don't have to necessarily leave the field to do it. So I'm a firm believer in all of these things, but I'm addressing architects and I'm not going to shy away from that. So think like an architect is addressing more or less the architecture student and the emerging professional in the first couple of years out. Adapt as an architect, I wrote both of these in the first six months of the pandemic. I did not know the pandemic was going to happen. Book contracts happen six to eight months before you start writing. And I wrote it because there's a lot of attention given to people in our field in the early parts. You look at the AIA and all their promotions and marketing, there's a lot of people don't look like me in terms of age. At the same time, there's a lot of people who are rewarded on the fellow side and the far end. And there's middle part of 25 to 35 years, the middle career, that's only going to get longer. With the Gen Zs, those born 1995 and after, they're going to live a long life, uh, maybe 100 years. Their careers are going to be much longer. And architects tend not to retire. They love what they do. Um, so all of that said, I really want to address the middle part. And at the same time, use it as a metaphor for self-transformation, not just how to become relevant after, let's say, five or 10 years in the field. But once you are relevant, how to remain relevant through all the ups and downs, the market cycles, through the injustices and, and everything else that happens along the way, climate change and whatnot, come to the fore. It may not be your expertise. How do you adapt? The second part of the book, so the first part's emphasizing relevance. The second part talks about that transformation. How can you transform yourself along the way without leaving the field? So there's five chapters that talk about the different ways that people have successfully done this. There are no interviews in the book, but that said, I tell the story of how when in 2018 through 20, just up until the pandemic, I traveled the world speaking, Australia, China, throughout the UK and Helsinki, and inevitably, somebody would come up to the dais afterwards, hand me their business card and say, do you have a half hour for coffee? And I'd have coffee with them. And I'd always feel bad because they would always ask me based on my talk, based on automation, based on AI, is there a place for them in the field for in the next 10, 20, 30 years? And they would inevitably, whether a man or a woman in our field, they would feel like they're threatened by what's happening and they don't see a place for themselves, just like super users don't see a place for themselves on the org chart. And while I try to answer their questions, I always felt bad that it was just me. I know there are people in my network who can answer the questions even better. And so I invited 50 people from my network to help me out. And so these chapters are a series of conversations with really brilliant answers that I've winnowed out, leaving a lot of proverbial film on the cutting room floor. It's really just these incredible nuggets that are hard-earned over 20 or 30 years of these individuals. Many are household names in the UK and the United States. And I call it a mid-career companion. My publisher fought me with that word. It's not like, from a marketing standpoint, a great word. But it's like those books that soldiers used to take with them and keep in their pocket during battle and just turn to for inspiration. It doesn't have to be read from beginning to end. There's a lot in there. I think there's an answer. If it doesn't answer your problem now, turn back to the book in five or 10 years, you'll have different problems and it'll answer those. Hmm. Have you seen anything from the landscape? So tying together the things that you've seen or have been thinking about in terms of how the future is changing, plus let's say a lot of the feedback that comes from an experience that is still positioned in the past, right? I mean, they're basically saying, I haven't read the book yet, but I'm going to be safe to assume that it's based off of, as you mentioned, hard-earned experience and whatnot. Like mm -hmm. they went through a cycle, they went through it. But is there anything where you, in those conversations that you're having where you felt like, hmm, but maybe this time it's different or actually something along those lines where you felt like, well, I benefited, benefited from the fact that I wrote this during the pandemic and everybody, without exception, was essentially in the same position. Yes, mm -hmm. some had families with little kids running around, whatnot. But I'm saying I benefited, and I don't mean this in an exploitive way. It is practice-based research, and I do, as a university professor full-time, have to go through these ethical steps, right? It's almost like doing experiments on animals 
talking to people at practice-based research is very similar in a lot of ways. And where I'm going with this is, is that I would ask myself questions. Okay, what happened to mentoring during the pandemic? If everyone's remote, was there evidence? And sure enough, looking at ZGF, for example, yeah, they'd send me a photograph of this individual sitting on his couch, talk to someone on the TV or the screen in front of them. And if they didn't tell me what the caption was for that photo, I wasn't sure. Maybe they're watching a TV show. No, it's a mentoring session occurring between two individuals during the pandemic. Life continues, things continue on. I don't want to say in any way that it is all just cyclical. Also, as I address very importantly in the book, the word adaption almost sounds like putting up a white flag in a way. Um, mm. Are we acquiescing? You know, if you think of adaptability in terms of climate change, I'm looking out my window right now at Lake Michigan, and as uh, lakes and seas rise over time, we are adapting isn't necessarily, you know, just by raising our buildings, for example, or building barricades, that's not the resilient approach, and it's not the only way to go. So I make it really clear that adaptability is not just about dealing with the status quo and keep doing what we're doing, we need to think about other solutions. But at the same time, there's a lot of great solutions just from what people have done in the past. And we're creative people. We can come up with ways mm. to apply it. I think the undertone there too that I think of is the word agency, where it's like the a lot of your books are kind of like talking about the mindset you need to have. Like think like an architect is the meta-narrative is basically critical thinking, right? And the different permutations of that. It's like being able to be in a position of control and a sense of your own future. And this can happen in many different levels, right? It can be at the super user level where actually maybe the leap from being a super user to a director is taking the time to put together a presentation that defines a business use case. Um, Or a firm owner that like doesn't let, feels like they keep hitting a wall and then they say, you know what we're going to focus on? Why is the wall there? That's really great. Really, uh, I'm going to be sure to pick that book up. I do want to take some questions now that they have popped up. Rob Hyde, who you may know, I think, in light of the Shirky principle, which is institutions will try to preserve the problem to which they are the solution. That's a great principle. Are the RIBA, ARB, AIA, NCARB, et cetera, an enabler or barrier to adaptation and acceptation of the profession? Yeah, thank you, Rob, for your question. And absolutely, thank you for being here. I love these guys. So I would have said 10 or 15, maybe 20 years ago, yes, enablers, not so the case anymore. The consulting I do, just pick out one example with NCARB and CLARB as well through uh, landscape registration. But with NCARB in the architecture field in the United States or internationally, to their credit, and with the rise of Mike Armstrong to CEO, when they say we're putting everything on the table, they really mean it. And so what they're looking at right now, yeah, everyone has an opportunity and needs to survive, okay? So you can't fault NCARB for wanting to be around 10 or 15 years from now. Doing so in a way where they don't exploit their constituency, fantastic. So they're saying if in 10 or 15 years with the rise of automation and AI, that we're not going to be registering or accrediting architects, then what are exactly is it that we are doing? What business are we in? So then are we going to be registering or accrediting buildings or the project team or the software that they use? Does that become the focus and not the architect themselves? So I'm seeing this everywhere. Just so that's one example, but I'm seeing it absolutely everywhere that People have made a shift in the last 10 to 15 years. Maybe it came out of the 2008 downturn, coincided with it, and are open to change and are not enablers. And this even goes for higher education. I think they know more than they can act on. It's just always been a long slog in education. You want to change your curriculum or your school's title or name, seven and a half years, done. You you can do that in five minutes online with our websites. So, Rob, I hope that uh, starts it, but I'll happy on the side to continue this with you. That's great. Thanks for sharing that for that question, Rob, too, and great response, Randy. Yvonne has a question, or Ivan, I uh, don't want to mispronounce, but I'm curious to know if you think there are certain key insights firms need to acquire to be able to have the important conversations and meaningful exchange to understand the full impact of data on practice. Thinking of data literacy, things like probabilistic thinking, 
or understanding the wisdom of how crowds work or just other types of concepts that are more well-known within circles of data or data scientists or analysts. Yeah, curious, what do you think on that? Yeah, I'd love to say that there is an agile approach or there's something in the Harvard Business Review that's going to solve all of this. It's not. Number one, they need to say, I'm wrong or I've been wrong. You know, we were going mm-hmm. down the path and you guys have followed me on it. And so leadership through followership and, and it didn't work. And now I'm open, open. We're open and open-minded as an organization. It's got to be an encounter of some sort. It cannot be a memo. It can't be a ding, ding, ding. Everyone gather around. Mm-hmm. I have an announcement to make. It's about the culture. Even more than that, it's about caring. It's caring about the future of the organization, but even more than that, caring about the future of the people who work in the organization, what is best for them. And the way most organizations have defined what's best for their constituents has been primarily whatever the client wants and the client needs. And that's not going to change. But what needs to change is that for that company to remain in an architecture field or profession, for that organization to thrive, and make enough profit to invest in their people, get them more vacation time and all the things that they want, the learning and education on the side so they can continue to grow. That company has to care for their people. There are many companies that already do, of course. Those may not be thinking in terms of data within the practice, and they need to turn their attention at that point. But if you cannot turn your attention prior to that. Those things need to, they're very basic human things that need to happen first. Yvonne, I think you probably knew I was going to answer that that way, but thank you for your question. Yeah, thank you so much. That was a great response. So I like to end off with one question for my guests that's a little bit away from everything else and just more human-centered as we are very much human-centered at Monograph. What is the nicest, kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? Oh, wow. Yeah, this is sort of apropos nothing. It's a very good friend of mine when I was living in Princeton, New Jersey for four years after grad school took me out for a going away dinner and he said it's going to rain. So we need to go back to his apartment and get an umbrella. And I didn't think twice about him. We're just talking. He's an architect in New York to this day. Mark Diefenbacher, shout out to you. He asked me at lunch the last time I was in New York, what's this thing you write about design technologists? We don't have them in our company. And we go in his apartment and there is every human being I had ever met in the last four years in Princeton or New York, everyone packed in there. And it's like one of those, this is your life. I pretty much in eighth grade in my yearbook, they said you're the least likely person ever to have a going away party or anything like that. And it was just a remarkable moment. It connect, there were people in that room who I'd never introduced to each other. But you recognize that people represent different parts of yourself. We all have schizophrenic, but we have different personalities based on the people we're with, situations we're in. And I think that moment that Mark created connected to all those synapses. And it's just been nonstop ever since then. It's been really easy to work with people and tap network. I didn't have a network before then, and it it was a beautiful thing. So thank you uh, so much for asking that question. Great question. Yes, really beautiful. And uh, with that, I'd like to just uh, wrap it up by talking a little bit about Monograph itself. So at Monograph, for those that are curious, we're building the future of practice operations, which is something we've talked a lot about today. Essentially, how do we enable people to run more operationally efficient organizations. Um, So for architects and other design professionals like landscape architects, we make it easy for team members to track time, visualize how that time impacts project budgets, schedules, and and even resources. So with, with Monograph, ultimately, you just input time and you get insights. So you can always understand where you are on a given project today. Yeah, so Monograph helps you make decisions. So With that, Brandy, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us. And thanks everyone else for joining us as well. Anytime. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Cheers. Bye, everyone. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.